Unless otherwise indicated, Ratchet Book Club is intended for a mature audience. Viewer discretion is greatly advised. Welcome to Ratchet Book Club, where we read hood classics and good classics. I'm Derek. 916-633-1537. Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com. Um, and we are Ratchet Book Club on Twitter. Um, hit us up. Leave a DM. Uh, leave an email. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts or uh, at Podchaser. Um... Yeah, I think that about sums it up. So, the last time we were reading Horror Sun, uh, we had gotten to uh, chapter five. Uh, and, and in chapters one through four, we learned about Horror Sun and, and his friend Tony and how they learned the game from Fast Black. Um, and Horson's mom, um, Jesse, uh, who uh, was a sex worker. Uh, who didn't need any other men in her life other than um, Horson. Well, didn't need any other... Well, yeah, because I think that she considered men and John to be two completely different things. Um, she actually called Horson her pimp. Like, she was teaching, like, she was saying that he was the only important... I don't know how that works. Anyhow, chapter five. When my 14th year on this bittersweet earth came... I felt as if I were a man. Jesse and I stood at about the same height now. My hair was black, with thick curls that hung down upon my brow. Whenever I went up on the corner with Jesse, I could feel the admiring glance the horse would throw my way. A few would even joke with Jesse about when would be my coming out date. On these occasions, I would remark to Jesse that I was ready to pimp, but she would only laugh and cap. You think you know how to talk slick, boy, but that ain't the key. Anyone could talk out the side of his neck. What you gotta do is find the key, honey. I can't give it to you. I can only tell you where to look for it. You gotta learn how to sell conversation, baby. At this time, I didn't know what she meant by finding the key. I knew I could think and talk fast. Plus, I knew all the latest slang. You just ain't hip, mom, I cap. I got some beef that sells better than a hamburger. The first time I screamed this on Jesse. I didn't know she wanted to slap me or not. She had raised her hand, but I stepped back out of reach. She looked at me sadly. Had I been older, I might have been able to read doubt in her eyes. Pimping is an art, Horson, she told me seriously. There are very few pimps in this world that can really take the title of being a pimp. Just because a man gets his money from a whore, that don't make him no true pimp. Real pimps are really rare. 
To prove her point, she reached down to her sweater and fumbled around. When she removed her hand, she pulled out a small roll of money. She put this into the palm of my hand, then closed my fingers over the bills. Count it, she said. I'm going to continue to work. When you think I've made enough money, tell me and we'll go home. I counted the $18 on my way to the Pigfoot joint on the corner. Tony and Milton were loitering around the jukebox. There was a booth full of young girls next to the jukebox, and they yelled at me playfully. I was in the process of convincing the girls to go out to my house so that we could use the bedroom when Jessie entered the restaurant. My back was turned to the door, so I didn't notice her. The kids in the booth got quiet. I turned around to see what the matter was, only to find my mother bearing down on me. She stopped in front of me and held out a $5 bill. I didn't know what to do, so I took the money. Her eyes didn't hold a hint of a smile. Just as suddenly as she entered, she turned to retrace her steps without speaking. I felt a little self-conscious, so I stuffed the $5 bill down into my pocket without flashing my roll. The last thing I wanted was for the kids to think I got my money from my mother. Tony would know where I got my bankroll at, but they wouldn't, and I had no desire for them to start getting wrong impressions. Had I really understood Jess's intention, I could have avoided the next incident by just going outside. But I was unprepared when she popped back in the door. She hadn't been gone ten minutes. I stared at her coming across the floor. Bewildered, I held out my hand for the ten dollar bill she carried loosely. In a voice that sounded shriller than the one I usually use, I heard myself saying, You ready to go in, Jesse? Jessie had never been ashamed of anything she did, not to my knowledge. She knew she was embarrassing me. This only aroused her sense of humor. It's up to you, sweet meat, she said, referring to the statement I made earlier. She ran her hand through my hair. I'm ready whenever you're ready. I really wanted to stay and shoot the bull with my school friends, but I was embarrassed by the way Jessie was acting. Given the choice of staying or leaving... I quickly accepted the latter. Had I been as old and wise as I thought I was, I would have realized that many people would get the wrong impression of our relationship. Being as naive as I was, the only thing that disturbed me was that people would think all the money I handled came from Jesse. Many sly looks were cast our way as we walked out the restaurant, from the older people as well as from the younger crowd. Jesse had a way of walking and made people think a queen was going past. To carry myself with such pride was my desire. On our way home, Jess started to cough. I held her arm and she bent over and spit up a mouthful of blood. You alright, Jessie? I'm as well as any nigger woman can hope to be, she answered lightly. For the first time that night, I was glad we were going home early. When we got home, Jessie slipped into a house coat while I fixed some coffee. She came into the kitchen and sat down across from me. She removed her makeup, and with it, the professional air she carried when she worked. I smiled with happiness. I realized that I loved this tall, strange, beautiful woman. She gave me one of her rare smiles. There was an understanding between us that was wonderful. Apparently, Jessie understood better than I that we were all each other had. I went to the cupboard, removed two cups from the shelf, and rinsed them out in the sink. We always took that precaution so we wouldn't have to worry about drinking a roach. I poured us both some coffee before sitting back down. 
Without taking her eyes from mine, Jessie placed a small bundle of reefer down beside my coffee cup. It wasn't difficult for me to recognize the ten joints I rolled that morning. They still had my blue rubber band around them. Leaving them under my pillow had been a mistake. I meant to retrieve them earlier, but had forgotten. To try and lie out of it would bring down instant punishment by whatever means lay near her hand. From past experience, I knew she wouldn't hesitate to throw the coffee cup at me if I lied. Jessie hated lies with a passion. I stared at the reefer. Hoping that my hand wouldn't shake too bad, I reached boldly for the reefer. After removing one from the group, I tossed the rest on the table in front of her. Removing a book of matches from my pocket, I lit the joint and took a deep drag. Jessie silently stared across the table at me. Neither of us had spoken yet, nor was I going to be the one to break the silence. She got up from the table and walked into the other room. Soon the sound of Billie Holiday singing her troubled blues came drifting from the record player in the front room. Jessie returned and picked up a joint and lit it. We sat at the table smoking reefer and talking until the sky began to get light outside. Of the many things she warned me about that night, one was to never use any drug but reefer. She made me promise that for no reason should I allow myself or someone else to shoot some heroin in my veins or snort it up my nose. I wasn't worried about using horse. I'd seen what shooting stuff did to Tony's mother, so I had no desire for that form of drug. We were both lit up pretty well when we staggered up from that table that morning. Jesse had made a short trip down the street and got a bottle of wine to go out the weed, so we'd become quite high. Her laughter rang out to welcome the sunrise as I helped her to stand. The flickering rays of the new day played tag across the wall as we staggered towards her bedroom with me holding her up. After I put her into her bed, I leaned down to kiss her lips, but she turned her head quickly to avoid it. I drew back and stared at her surprise. She drew my head back down and kissed me on the cheek. There. You're a big boy now. Save your passionate kisses for your young girlfriends. Before I could tiptoe out of the room, she had rolled over and gone to sleep. The following weeks became difficult for me. Jesse continued to hunt me down in whatever restaurant, pool room, or doorway I happened to be loitering in. It became so obvious she was giving me her trap money that Tony remarked, Man, why don't you tell Jesse what people are saying? I stared at him amused. If I knew what they were saying, I'd tell her. He laughed at my reply. Time after time as we walked home from school, he'd look over at me and laugh. We continued down the street, but soon I began to get weary of his humor. The more irked I became, the louder he laughed. A group of boys came through a yard carrying a case of wine they had stolen. It was Head and his gang. He received his nickname because of the size of his head. It was longer than a football, with lumps on the back of it. He was short and wide with a flat nose from too many schoolyard fights. His gang was the only one in the neighborhood anywhere near as tough as ours, and because he was their leader, he was always trying to prove how mean he was. They spotted us and stopped. All eight of them were roaring drunk. I realized this could be trouble, so I watched Head closely. In school, on many occasions, we had started out joking only to end up talking about each other seriously. I knew that for some reason, Head had a dislike for me. He handed Tony his bottle. I would offer you a drink, Horson, but I don't let white niggas drink out of my bottle.
All of us went to the neighborhood movie each weekend, and we had just seen a cowboy picture where an actor had made a similar remark. I grinned at what I thought was his idea of joking and remained silent. Tony took a long drink and then handed me the bottle. Man, didn't you hear what I said? Head yelled angrily at Tony. The children in front of the broken down home stopped their playing to watch. Their mothers came out of the crumbling porches, like roaches flocking the garbage, drawn by the imminence of violence. It was in the air, something intangible, felt by all but seen by none. Fuck you, head, and your big black ass, Tony replied quietly. I took a long drink from the bottle and held it out towards head. He knocked the bottle from my hand, breaking it on the ground. I wouldn't drink after no bastard or pimps off his own mammy, he snorted loudly. Man, won't you be cool, Tony said softly. Anytime somebody's mama gives them some money, some ignorant son of a bitch could call it pimping. That's different, Head stated and stared at me with his beady red eyes. This half-white freakish bastard is fucking his mammy. Before the words had left his mouth, I reached across the narrow space and grabbed Head. My right hand seized his shirt, while my left exploded on his chin. I followed this with a knee to the groin, and when he bent over, I straightened him up with my knee. Blood shot all over my clothes, and I busted his nose. With left and right hooks to the head, I knocked him out into the street. I ran after him and kicked him in the face. This is how the police caught me when they drove up behind us. I was still kicking him in the head and face. I learned earlier in my childhood the art of street fighting. Violence was the way of life, and I was dedicated to being good in anything I participated in. The police took us downtown. Before taking me to juvenile, they dropped Head off at a receiving hospital. He was in need of medical treatment. I sat in a small room and waited for my mother to arrive. After what seemed like a two-hour wait, a tall, white-haired man appeared and led me into another room where my mother waited. Jessie rushed over and examined me for any injuries. She seemed so concerned that I decided not to tell her what the fight had been about. I didn't want her to have any unnecessary worry, so I remained silent as we left the building. Evening had come over the city. Dark clouds covered the skies as we walked down darkened streets in search of a cab. Jessie put her arm around my shoulder and spoke slowly. Not that I give a damn about what they say or think, Horson. But I just never realized what some low-minded bastards would think after seeing me give you my money every night. We stopped walking for a moment while Jessie fumbled around in her purse. She removed a small notebook. Each page in the book was dated, with a notation of ink following each day as to how much money she had given me to hold that night. After each week, she had added the total for all seven days. I stared at the book in confusion. I still couldn't comprehend her reasons for keeping notes on the money. I returned the money to her every night after she quit work. In a sudden fit of humor, she laughed at my perplexity. Darling, this is just a record to show you what kind of whore money not to accept. If any of your girls should bring you this kind of money, it would mean you're not pimping. You're simping. Oh yes, she added, laughing rambunctiously. Thanks for giving me a vacation. I have never known that she resorted to scorn intentionally that night, or if my ignorance really was that amusing. Whatever the reason, it got the job done. From that day on, I knew I would never accept schoolgirl money from a woman again. 
When we continued walking, with her arm around my shoulder and her laughing ringing in my ear, I clutched the notebook tightly. It served its point. Besides teaching me what kind of trap money not to accept, it taught me that a woman would test her man at all times. I knew then that I would one day pimp, and pimp good, because I was going to pimp with a passion. You know, in the last episode, I was talking about how uh, I was worried that they were going to be talking bad about black women in this book. And so far, I, I am pleasantly surprised. Like, he literally damn near deifies Jesse. And Jesse is such a regal character and such a queen that it's easy to see. Like, she demands commit. She commands respect demands too but commands respect every room she walks into they just give it to her even the dude lou who was talking about her in the last chapter or in the last episode uh knew to speak lightly when he was around her and to respect who she was so i don't know i really do like this book and i love the fact that um this book is edited better and written better than any of the books that i've read from our era from like 2010 on out like those books are so rushed it's like didn't y'all read this this is the blueprint for what y'all are doing what are you doing chapter six after being awake all night and most of the weekend jesse and i were in a hurry to get home to bed sunday morning when she finished work the square working people in the neighborhood had started drifting by on their way to church dress up in their sunday best we passed milton with his parents coming down the sidewalk he winked at me, but I refused to acknowledge it since he was damn near grown and was still too frightened to speak when he was with his mother. His mother made some kind of comment. What a shame. But we were walking too fast to hear all of what she said. Jesse seemed as tired as I was. We ran up the stairs to our flat. She was halfway undressed before I could close the door. Her blouse was tossed over the back of a chair and she had wiggled out of her skirt and tossed it onto the couch. I was in the process of running her some bath water when someone started banging on the door. Before I could get there, Jessie opened the door wearing only her half-slipping bra. Tony rushed into the room with tears streaking his cheeks. Jessie, he sobbed. You gotta come, Jessie. Mom done took an overdose, Jessie, and ain't nothing I'm doing seem to help her. For the first time in my life, I realized that Tony really cared about his mother though there had never been the harmony between them that there was between Jesse and me. From the many times I had been over to his house, I had yet to notice anything other than indifference between the two. Idly, I wondered how Jesse would refuse to go. I knew she didn't particularly care for Tony's mother, especially not enough to go back out after working all night. To my surprise, she simply turned and began to put back on her skirt and blouse. Unexpected as this was, even more surprising was the fact that she hadn't even cursed. In less than ten minutes, we were climbing the steps of the four-room apartment where Tony lived. The door was already open when we got there. The woman who stayed across the hall was standing in the doorway crying. She looked at Jesse and shook her head. It's too late, honey. She done passed away. Tony rushed into the bedroom. Jesse and I followed silently. There wasn't anything anyone could do for her. She lay on the bed, decently covered, with her eyes open. Even for someone as inexperienced as I, the awareness of death in the room was inescapable. The tears that Tony shed seemed inexhaustible. 
Tears rolled down Jessie's cheeks, smearing her makeup. Everyone was crying but me. I turned and left the bedroom. This is a new experience for me, and I was really shook up. I need some fresh air to remove the smell of death from my nostrils. Without stopping in the living room, I crossed the carpet and opened the door leading to the hallway. Before I could get through the door, two burly policemen came marching into the room. Behind them came the elderly couple who lived downstairs. Is this the boy? The last officer asked the woman following him. I shook my head. This time I knew I wasn't the boy they wanted. Nah, she answered. That ain't him. One of the officers went to the bedroom. In a few moments, he reappeared with Tony and Jesse. Before long, the apartment was full of people, most of them police officers. Jesse went over in the corner and talked to a detective. I saw her write out something on a slip of paper and hand it to him. Then she came over and heard Tony and me out of the room. We walked back home in silence, Jesse in the middle with her arms around both of us. The sadness of the occasion overwhelmed us, leaving room for sleep only. The week following the funeral, our way of living became to some extent more orthodox. Jessie stopped working at night and got a daytime job in the cleaners. She wouldn't allow Tony and me to gamble anymore, plus we had to be in the house by 8 o'clock every night. We were becoming frustrated by this imposed curfew, and this frustration showed in our relationship with Jessie and everyone else. Jessie was responsive and sensitive to our feelings, but she wouldn't tolerate any disrespect. She continued diligently with her job while making us walk a straight line. But all her efforts were in vain. After Tony had been with us for a week and a half, a policewoman stopped by the house. Tony and I had just come in from school. Jessie was still at work, so the woman put us in her car and drove us over to the cleaners. The woman went into the cleaners and came out a short while later, followed by Jessie, who seemed to be pleading with her. It was the first time I had ever seen her beg anyone. I hoped it would be the last time. The harder she seemed to beg, the more the woman would shake her head in refusal. Tony realized how useless her pleas were before I did. He opened the door and got out. Taking Jesse's hand, he kissed it slowly. She turned and stared at him, surprised. It's no use, Jesse, he said. I'll always remember how hard you tried, though. She drew him close and wrapped her arms around him, tears in her eyes as she kissed him. It was like a hammer hitting me when I realized Tony was being taken away. I jumped out the car. We stood on the sidewalk and hugged each other, our tears flowing unashamedly. Had I known it would be years before we would meet again, I still couldn't have wept harder. After the woman left with Tony, Jessie went in to quit her job. On the way home, she tried to joke about the job. But I believe in my heart that she would have stopped hustling and kept her job if it would have helped to keep Tony. Jessie bought a bottle of gin, and that night she got roaring drunk. At times she would laugh and shout, and at other times she would cry. When she attempted to go to work drunk, I went and got Big Mama, and she helped me bring Jessie home and put her to bed. For a while, I was consumed with loneliness. After my initial shock about Tony wore off, I resumed gambling and petty stealing. Had I been an introvert, I probably would have been more sensitive to my close friend's problem. But after really appraising the situation, I realized the sentiment was useless. 
Even before Jesse advised me to quit worrying because there was nothing we could do, I reached the same conclusion. In the slums, you have too many problems on your own to cultivate other people's trouble. Whew! That's, this is me. That's a word. I mean, right now, what I tell my wife and what I tell the kids is don't, don't borrow trouble. It'll find you on its own. And I never remember where I got it from, but that is a word and a half. Please remember that in the slums, you have too many problems of your own to cultivate other people's trouble. Don't help other people build their problems. Just keep it pushing. Usually, I spent most of my leisure time on Hastings. But since I was becoming so well known to the hustlers who hung out on that street, I had to go farther to find my action. One day, I wandered into a small restaurant on Brush. A tall, slim, light-skinned woman was bent over picking up some trash. I leaned on the counter to admire her legs better. She was bow-legged and wide across the rump. Her hair was raven black and hung down on her back. I knew she hadn't heard me come through the door because it had become a habit of mine to enter as silently as possible. She must have sensed my presence behind her because she turned suddenly and caught me staring in fascination. She seemed startled at first but her look was bold and penetrating. Suddenly, I became uncomfortable. She had dark green eyes, which reminded me of a cat, and a long, keen nose. Her complexion was the color of burnt copper, and to me, she looked like the goddess of love. Usually, I could stare at a woman and make her drop her eyes, but this time, I had to drop mine. She seemed to undress me with those green eyes, and I got the impression of something cold and hard about her. I pushed my hair back off my forehead and gave her my innocent smile to fake her out. She smiled in return, revealing lovely teeth, and the caddish look disappeared. After our first meeting, I began to stop by the restaurant every day. I knew that Fatima liked me even though there was a 10-year difference in our ages. One afternoon, I found her sitting by a table by herself, dressed in her street clothes. This was the first time I would seen her without her white uniform. The green dress clung to her body. It was cut low on the front and I could see the roundness of her breasts. My breath caught in my throat and I could feel my blood rush to my head. Desire for this woman had become an obsession. I wanted to possess her completely. She stared up at me and I knew she could see the anxiety in my eyes. Without speaking, she slipped out of her chair and stood in front of me. We were the same height but the heels she wore caused her to tower above me. Taking my hand, she led me from the restaurant. The other waitress stared at us curiously. Fatima waved down a cab. When we got in, I settled down in the seat beside her. As the cab jumped in and out of traffic on its way across town, her hand found mine on the seat, and she placed it between her legs. I was in seventh heaven. And until this day, I cannot recall the location of the apartment she took me to. We entered the apartment and stopped inside the door. Somehow, she managed to close the door and slip into my arms in the same smooth motion. I could feel her tongue slipping around inside my mouth. It felt like a hot, flaming spear. Everywhere it touched, it aroused erotic emotions. I have been kissed by girls many times, but nothing like this. Her mouth was hot. Her breath felt like a hot wind blowing upon my neck. I could feel her body radiating heat through her dress. She slipped out of my embrace and, pulling me by the arm, led me into her bedroom. We both began to remove our clothes quickly. Fatima finished undressing first. 
She helped me remove my pants and lightly shoved me back onto the bed. The room was well furnished. The walls had been painted a shocking pink, while the dresser and matching pieces were snow white. It was a showroom, displaying the feminine traits of its occupant. I could feel her kissing me tenderly on the legs and thigh. She removed my silk shorts and I heard her catch her breath in surprise. I smiled because I knew what had given her a shock. I was aware that nature had been exceptionally nice to me in a certain department. Suddenly, I could feel her hot breath on my privates and I began to tingle all over. The boys and I had discussed blowjobs before and while I had spoken on the subject like an expert, this is my first experience. Wow. It was like standing up in bed while still lying down. My head and my heels were the only thing touching the bed. I felt like screaming, but I held back in anticipation. At the final moment, I grabbed her head and pushed against it and held it to me at the same time. Later, I flopped back on the bed exhausted. Fatima got up and went to the bathroom. After washing up, she returned to the bedroom and asked, Would you care for a drink? I nodded in agreement and watched the sway of her hips as she walked into the living room. In a few moments, she returned carrying two water glasses filled to the brim. I tasted the drink she had given me. It was whiskey mixed with very little soda. I had drunk wine before but had never drank any strong spirits because the burning stuff would cause tears to spring into my eyes. I started to set the drink down on the table beside the bed. Fatima caught my hand and pushed the drink towards me. Be a big boy, honey. I ain't standing for no shit about you not getting high with me, she said huskily. I didn't want her to know I hadn't drunk anything stronger than wine, so I turned up the glass and drained it. It was so strong, it almost took my breath. Somehow, I managed to hold the drink down. Fatima emptied her glass, then lay beside me and we kissed for a while. Suddenly, she got back up and went to refill the glasses. I really didn't want another drink, but my not wanting to reveal my inexperience caused me to try and match drinks with her. Sitting cross-legged on the bed, Fatima began to shake out some white powder onto a magazine. I watched her in dread. I had never snorted drugs before, but I knew him when I saw him. Removing a book of matches from the table, she tore off a strip from the back cover. Taking the strip and putting a crimp in the middle, she used it like a shovel to scoop up some of the white drug. Holding one nostril, she put the powder into the other one and snorted. The powder disappeared as if by magic. She refilled the quill and pushed it towards me. I turned my head sideways and sat up on the side of the bed. Don't be afraid, honey. It's only a little cocaine, she whispered, her laughter following low and husky. I trembled with an unknown fear. I could hear Jesse's warning roar on my head. Don't ever take any drug other than reefer. The small amount Fatima had taken didn't seem to disturb her much, so I tried a little bit. The more I snorted, the higher I became. Her hands roaming over my body aroused sensual sensations I had never experienced. Everywhere she touched became sensitive. My nerves became raw, and they tingled with unheard of pleasures. I lay back on the bed as my keen sensibilities blazed with passion. I felt one of her legs rest upon my chest. In moments, I became aware of my neck being caught in the lengthwise grip between her thighs. 
She began to thrust her hips with a steady force until the continuous pressure produced a light discharge that seemed to spray my face. Anger and hate twisted inside my gut as the notion ran through my mind that she had made a freak out of me. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm laughing because he made her squirt and he's like mad about it. This is the 40s or the 70s, probably the 50s at this point in time. But damn. Be proud of yourself, nigga. You did that. Root. Pushing her aside, I ran into the bathroom and washed my face thoroughly. I stuck my head under the spigot in the bathtub and rinsed my mouth out. I could hear Fatima standing in the doorway laughing. The more water ran over my head, the clearer my mind became. As I stood up, I faked a drunk stagger. She laughed again and came forward to help. I hit her with a straight right to the head, causing her to tumble all the way back into the bedroom. I followed her quickly, but instead of finding an unconscious woman, I ran straight into a wildcat. Her naked body gleamed in the dim light as she met me in the middle of the room, snarling like an animal and clawing like a cat. I shot hook after hook to her head. She was bleeding from nose and mouth, and for a moment I had doubts about being able to whip this grown woman. She got a grip on my hair and dug her claws into my cheek. I could feel the pain as she raked the side of my face. Remembering that the best way to stop a woman was to hit her in the stomach, I shot her left and right to her gut. She folded up like a bag. I put one on her exposed chin. She exploded against the wall. Most of the fight was out of her she sank to the floor, but I had no intention of quitting now. I walked over to the closet and removed the coat hanger. As I twisted the wire together, her eyes followed me the way a hurt animal watched his killer. She began to whimper as I picked up a pillowcase and wrapped it around my hand so the wire wouldn't cut me. Her screams seemed to shake the walls as I laid into her. I continued beating her until I was exhausted. I sat on the edge of the bed resting as I watched her crawl across the floor towards me. She began to kiss my feet passionately with whimpers of pleasure escaping from her with each caress. When she kissed her way up my knee, I kicked her in the head knocking her back to the floor. I knelt down across her body and slapped her across her face. Then I began to ravish her savagely. She dug her nails into my back while her screams shattered the silence, but I was deaf to her cries and continued to rape her. I ain't, I ain't got shit to say. I don't. This book is what it is. We gonna keep pushing. Chapter 7. I staggered from the apartment in the daze, wandering down unfamiliar streets with my face caked with drying blood. The left side of my face had three long scratch marks where Fatima dug her nails in. I continued on aimlessly until the darkness of the approaching night surrounded me. When I arrived home, I was surprised when Big Mama opened the door for me. I entered the flat and turned my head so she wouldn't notice my scratches. When she spoke, her voice was low and urgent. Corson, you go wash that blood off your face, then change clothes. Hurry, boy. Jessie's real sick and she's been calling for you. After washing and changing shirts, I rushed into Jessie's room. Two of the girls who worked out of Big Mama's house were in the bedroom. One of them helped Jessie while she sat up. The other one hand-fed Jessie some soup from a bowl she held. Big Mama towered over the women, watching their movements closely to make sure there were no mistakes. I walked over to the bed quietly and looked down. 
Jesse caught my hand and smiled weakly. There seemed to be no strength in her grip, and as I looked down on her, I realized she was very ill. She stared up at me with tense and penetrating eyes. Suddenly, she turned her head to cough. My heart shook with fear when her parched lips became covered with blood. The woman holding her gently leaned her back against her pillows. At times, she coughed so hard that her body trembled and shook. She tossed her head from side to side as though the pain was unbearable. Then suddenly she will recognize me and the dark shadows behind her eyes will leave for a few moments. She will rest peacefully. With the arrival of the doctor, her breathing became less difficult and she seemed to sleep. I went into the living room and waited until he came out. After he left, Big Mama said something about Jesse having consumption. At that time, this didn't mean anything to me. The following week became a nightmare. Jessie didn't get any better. She just lingered on. Okay, so I had to look that one up real quick. Uh, consumption, there's actually a medical definition for it. Uh, consumption is a once common term for wasting away of the body, particularly from pulmonary tuberculosis. Uh, other old TB terms include the king's evil or scrofula, which is TB of the lymph nodes in the neck, and Pott's disease, which is TB of the spine. And yeah, it makes sense now to think that she was coughing up blood and whatnot because with, with TB, because that's what uh, Doc Holliday had in, in Tombstone. And that's the only thing that I really know of TB. As the days drifted past, I couldn't help but get the impression that the two women from Big Mama's house were getting tired of playing nurse. If one of them told me she'd be there at 10 o'clock in the morning, I'd be lucky to see her before 4 in the afternoon. Big Mama came every day, but somebody always showed up later in the day to fetch Big Mama to settle some trouble at her house. Jesse had a little over $500 saved, and we had been using some of it to pay the doctor and buy medicine. One afternoon, the rent man showed up. I left him sitting in the front room while I went to get the rent. Jesse was sleeping when I entered her room, so I tiptoed over to the closet. I put my hand down the lining of the old coat where the money was kept and came up with my fingernails full of dust. My mind was rocked by the thought of somebody having beat us for our stash. Snatching the coat from the hanger, I turned the lining inside out. The money was gone. In my panic, I ripped the lining completely out of the coat. That was no money. I turned around in the daze, too hurt and dumbfounded to think. I wanted to cry, but tears wouldn't come. Suddenly, I realized Jesse was awake and watching me silently. My mind began to function more clearly. I pulled myself together so she wouldn't become aware of our trouble. I knew the big mama wouldn't have taken the money, so that left the two whores. My whole being was consumed with a cold, deadly hate. Is all of it gone, Horson? She asked in a frightened voice. My silence only confirmed her suspicion. Walking over to the bed, I took Jessie in my arms and tried to console her. I begged her not to worry, but there was murder in my heart. When she stopped crying, I fixed her pillows for her and went back into the living room. The rent man became agitated over delay, and when he saw me, he started to frown. My anger was just about to reach a boiling point, so I walked over to the door and opened it. You'll have to pick up your money next week, 
I said, holding his hat out for him. He must have read something in my face because he took his hat and left without too much grumbling. I closed the door and leaned against it. I knew what I had to do. With no money in the house and a sick mother to take care of, my childhood came to an abrupt end. Suddenly, the bedroom door opened and Jessie stood there with her street clothes on. There was a stricken look about her, but her face was full of determination. Her body swayed as though she was being driven by a strong wind. I rushed to her side and caught her in my arms before she fell. Horson, put me down, boy. I'll be all right. I just ain't been on my feet in a long time. There was desperation in her voice, but she was so weak that she knew it would have been impossible for her to even walk up to the corner, let alone catch a trick. Her tears soaked through my shirt as I carried her back to her room. Much later, after Jessie went to sleep, I went into my bedroom and dressed with the utmost care. After combing my hair the way the girls like to see it, I closed the door silently behind me and left the house. The kids running up and down the street waved in my direction. Milton and two other guys from my gang met up with me and walked along until I came to the restaurant. We stood outside and looked through the window. Fatima was bending over the counter taking the customer's orders. Cautioning the guys not to follow me unless they saw me get into trouble, I entered the restaurant. Fatima didn't notice me until I reached the counter. After placing a hamburger on the cooking grill, she turned and saw me. Her hand flew to her mouth and her eyes grew large with fear. Making my stare cold and harsh, I beckoned towards her with my head. My voice snapped her like a whip. Take that apron off. I got something else for you to do other than fry hamburgers. She stood there too shocked to move until I stepped behind the counter. I don't know what I would have done if she continued standing there, but she saved me the trouble of finding out. She took a quick look at my sad face, then removed her apron and started to climb over the counter. Not that way, bitch, I growled. Come on around this way. She recoiled slightly when our eyes met. Why are you looking at me like that, she asked she started past me. When I slipped my arm around her waist, I could feel her stiffen. I remained silent until I led her out the restaurant, ignoring the inquiring stares that followed us. When I ran my hand down over her body, she relaxed under my arm. Her mouth turned up in a smile and I knew she was scheming fast and furious. I decided to keep her unbalanced. Seeing an empty doorway, I pushed her into it and slapped her. Stark fear sprang up in her eyes and she backed up in panic. My words drummed at her, giving her no time to think. Bitch, I'm taking you up on the track to work. The trick spin from $3 on up. It's up to you how much they spend. I just don't want to hear that you turn down anything over $3. That's rock bottom. Do you understand? She was slow in answering, so I slapped her again. Her head bobbed up and down in response. I want you to turn at least three tricks an hour. At $3 a lay, that's $9 an hour. $90 in 10 hours. I stepped back from her. Now, bitch, do you think you can get my trap money together without causing me to kill you? She mumbled something in agreement. Taking her by the arm, I led her to Hastings Street. I stuck so close to her on the track that she didn't have time to try and run away. While she stood in the doorway hustling, I stand across the street and watch her. When she caught a trick, I follow him into the trick house and wait until she finished. 
After the trick left, she'll come out of the bedroom and give me the money before going to the bathroom and washing up. That night, after she finished catching dates, I knew she was hooked. Fatima had taken the horn like a fish takes the water. Because of my concern for Jesse, I pulled Fatima up from the trap before midnight. Earlier in the evening, I had given a girl I knew from school $5 to go to Jesse and stay with her until I got home. Just like a good whore, Fatima complained that the tricks had just really started to ride good, so she wasn't ready to go in. The money she made was in the 80s without counting the five I had given away. We stopped in a Greasy Spoon restaurant and ordered two dinners to go. While waiting on our order, Fatima walked over to the jukebox. Loud laughter caused me to glance around and see a tall, brown-skinned stud with a thick mustache getting up from a booth occupied by the two whores who had been coming up to see Jesse. I felt like exploding on top of both of them, but I curbed my anger. Walking over to the table, I stared down on them. They stared up at me in mock surprise. Hi, Horson. I see you done got chose, one of them said before they both broke out in laughter. It was easy to see that they were high off weed or coke. They were not aware of the deadliness welling up inside of me. I had to turn away or I would have killed one of them. My glance went to Fatima. She was trying to pry their pimp's hand loose from her arm. A blinding rage consumed me. My control slipped completely away. Grabbing a pop bottle off a couple's table, I rushed to the tall man's back. He must have heard me coming because he dropped her arm and turned quickly. With the full swing of my arm, I caught him square in the face. If I hadn't caught him by surprise, he probably would have killed me. He was full grown while I was only 16. The surprise attack plus the bottle equalized the fight. I didn't give him any air. He fell back against the jukebox with his arms outstretched. I kicked him viciously between the legs. He almost turned green. As he fell forward, I grabbed a handful of processed hair with my left hand and burst the bottle with my next swing in his face. Blood and teeth splattered the floor. A warning scream from Fatima caused me to whirl around. I, I, I looked it up. The girl I knew from church, her name was Fatima, but it's pronounced Fatima, so I'm going to go with what everybody else calls it. Her mom called her Fatima, or called her Fatima, though. I got stories. I'll tell you later. Maybe on Patreon. Let's go. Anyways, the name will now be Fatima, not Fatima. A warning scream from Fatima caused me to whirl around. Both of his whores were charging. They meant business. The first one had a knife, while the second one had a bottle. Fatima tripped the first one, and then she rushed past to get to me. I stepped back she sprawled out on the floor in front of me and kicked her in the face. The second was on top of me with the bottle. I took the first blow on my upraised arm. Before she could hit at me again, Fatima caught her behind the head with a chair. After that, I could take my time. While Fatima kept one girl busy, I stomped the other in the face till her nose broke and most of her teeth were stomped out. When I finished with her, I turned and pried the bottle loose from the one Fatima was tussling with. Breaking the bottle, I bent down and pinned the second whore to the floor with my knees. With the knowledge of what they had done to me and Jesse burning in my breast, I took the jagged edge of the bottle and cut up her face. Fatima turned pale as death when the blood flowed. She twisted her head away and started to puke. I didn't give her time. Grabbing her arm, I hustled her out the door. 
Before we had crossed the street, a police car screeched to a halt. When they rushed into the restaurant, I led Fatima through a gangway that led directly into an alley. We cut across alleys in between houses until we wound up in my backyard. Dropping her hand, I led the way up the stairs. She followed me into the house like a well-trained French poodle. Just about out of breath, I sat down in the chair in the front room. I caught her staring at me with a look of horror on her face, mixed with something like admiration. Betty, the young girl I had paid to watch Jesse, stood in the bedroom door smiling. She was a tall, thin girl with big eyes and so knock-kneed you could pick her out in the crowd. How's Jesse doing? I asked quietly. She fell asleep right before you came in, Horson. But your mother is sure sick, she answered. Fatima spoke suddenly. You ain't afraid somebody might bring the police, Horson? I hadn't given the problem any thought. Now that she brought it to my attention, I realized that it wouldn't take long for some informer to lead the police to my house. I had enough game about myself not to allow my woman to see me undecided. Since I really didn't know what to do, I decided to play strong. Pimping was a 24-hour job, but I meant to pimp 25. Bitch, turn that wall loose and get in the bedroom and find you a house coat. I want to hear your bathwater running in three minutes, plus have a sweet smell of whore in five. She moved like she had been shot out of a cannon. When she came out of Jesse's room with the house coat, she was running so fast that before I could point out the bathroom, she would run into another bedroom. Before I could call her a bunch of dumb bitches, she had found the bathroom and the sound of running water could be heard. Betty stared at me in wonder. You always said you was going to pimp, didn't you, Horson? Our eyes met. She was looking at me in a peculiar manner. Ain't your mother going to worry about you, Betty, if you ain't home? She laughed harshly. Shit, Horson. My mama done got drunk off that $5 and went to bed with some man somewhere. Besides, it don't make her no difference if I don't never get home. That's one less mouth for her to feed. You mean your mom won't say anything if I pay you to stay here and take care of Jesse? I asked quickly. She replied bitterly. My mother wouldn't say anything if I moved in here with you, Horson, except to warn me not to bring no babies back, expecting her to take care of them. There was a strange light in Betty's eyes that I couldn't make out. You wouldn't mind sleeping on the couch, would you? I asked. She wet her lips with her tongue. Betty was staring at me the way a hungry dog watches a bone. It made me uncomfortable. There was something inflexible about her look. Caused me more discomfort than I've ever felt from a woman's stare. It seemed like an eternity before Fatima finished her bath. When she came out, I had her stretched out on the couch. Just to have something to do, I massaged her back, legs, and shoulders. She purred like a large cat under my hand and my gentle kisses on certain parts of her body. We were interrupted by heavy footsteps on the stairway. I snatched Fatima up from the couch and we ran into the bedroom. Someone began pounding loudly on the door. With a warning to Betty that she hadn't seen us, I closed the bedroom door. Leaning against it, I took Fatima in my arms and held her close. I could feel her trembling from head to foot. Big Mama's familiar voice released some of the tension. Horson, damn you boy, get out here. Opening the door slightly, I peeped out. Big Mama was standing in the middle of the floor with her hands on her mammoth hips. Move, boy, damn it, 
she roared. You ain't got too much time. Fatima and I entered the room like two frightened chickens. Big Mama glared at me with eyes blazing. I ain't got the time now to find out why you and that yellow whore of yours mess up them two girls, boy, but you better have a good reason when I have time for you to explain it. I started to stutter out an explanation, but she cut me short. Boy, the police is coming. They know your name. They know you did the cutting. Now all they got to do is get someone to show them where you stay. My mind was racing a mile a minute. I knew I had to get away, but I didn't have the slightest idea where to go. Fatima was staring at me with complete confidence. If she had been able to realize how completely at a loss I was, I believe she would have ran off. Big Mama came to our rescue. I let the car downstairs horsing. The driver knows where to take you. Her voice was full of fury as she continued. I want you to make damn sure you stay there and keep that whore with you too until I get there. I could tell her temper was just about at the exploding point. And when that happened, Big Mama went to her violent bag. So I got out of her sight real quick. The last thing I wanted was for Fatima to see somebody whip me. With a few clothes tossed together, I stopped in the bedroom and spoke with Jesse for a moment, and then departed, not aware that it would be the last time I saw my mother alive. It's a book about pimping, and he's been forced into the role before he was ready, but uh, I know the book. I mean, I don't know it word for word. But I know he's going to be fine. And there's some jewels in this book that people probably picked up. That <sighs> There's things in this book that could either lead you down the right path or the dark path. And I'm sure that in those days there were people who picked up this book and it led them down the dark, dark path. Thinking that they could pimp too. What I'm curious about is how people read this book. Grew up on this book. Love this book and then write such trash today. One thing I could say about Horson, while yes, there was an uh, uh, a rape scene, it still somehow felt different than the stuff that I've read in some of the newer books that uh, I've been reading on the show. It's weird. The way that Donald Goings wrote it, it just seemed like it was a part of life. Like it was a part of his day. Oh no. 916-633-1537. Wretchedandratchet at gmail.com is the email address. Please feel free to contact me. Uh, Ratchet Book Club on Twitter. Um, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or on Podchaser. Uh, on Podchase, you can review separate shows, uh, or you can review episodes piecemeal, depending on how you feel. Thank you so much for listening. You can also support me through my Patreon, which is patreon.com backslash single simulcast, or you can just uh, buy me a book at buymeacoffee.com backslash sscast. Thank you so much for listening. I do greatly appreciate it. And um, I hope y'all have a wonderful day. Y'all be good. Peace.
intro and outro to Ratchet Book Club is by That Kid Garan, and it's called Goodbyes. You can email him at tkgbeats94 at gmail.com for more information on how to lease this beat. This is Single Simulcast. Don't know by now that you slipped.